Uh, well, good morning, church. My name is Or Afternoon, depending on where you are and when you're watching or listening to this. My name is uh, Cameron Sparks. I'm the youth pastor here at Dallas Bible Church. I love my job very much. I love the chances that I get to, to preach too. It's a joy and a privilege. Uh, so thank you for being here with us this morning. Thank you for tuning in. If you're here with us online, uh, and we're in the start of Romans chapter 2 this morning. If you want to go ahead and, and turn there, we're going to dive in in just a second. We've been doing a series on Romans. And this morning, we're talking about judging others, which I know is not something we struggle with here, right? But uh, it's not the most fun topic to discuss, and I'm sensitive to that. And uh, I'm, I'm going to ask us to do the hard work of really digging in and searching our own heart this morning as it relates to how we think of others. Because judging others is not smart. Even just practically speaking, uh, we're, we're created, human beings are created in the image of God. We have innate value and worth because of that fact. And so we're crafty right? Uh, we're, we're inventors and we're creators just like our God is. We're capable of much growth. And so it's never smart to write off another human being. Uh, who, who's uttered the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover? I'm just curious. How many of you have said that before? Okay, I've said it. If you haven't said it, it's probably because you're young and eventually you will find yourself saying it and then you'll say, what is happening to me? I'm turning into my parents what is going on? This is scary. Uh, but, you know, it's a phrase, it's an age-old saying for a reason, right? Uh, there, there's so many stories that have that lesson at their center as, as kind of their moral, right? How many stories involve some protagonist at the start who's, you know, just written off by everyone? He's useless, he's worthless, but he grows and he trains and he becomes this hero who saves the day. It makes me think of Lord of the Rings, right? You have Sauron, and he, uh, he essentially writes off these itty-bitty little hobbits, right? They're of no consequence to him. Why would he even concern himself with these hobbits? And it's actually because of their very nature that they're these, you know, unassuming, non-power-hungry people that they're actually able to resist the temptations of his ring. And in the end, it's the hobbits who defeat him. And I remember learning this lesson myself in high school playing basketball. It was my sophomore year. And we actually had a really good team for us our sophomore year. I was playing at a really small private school. And, uh, and it was preseason. And we were playing a homeschool team. And uh, so we, we went to this gym uh, in the Lakewood area. And they show up. And there are five of them. They have five players. And like their tallest player is like a little bit taller than me. And I'm just like, these dudes are scrubs. They don't even have a sub. They can't even get, get a single sub on their team. And my coach is like, don't underestimate them. They're very well coached. And I'm like, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. The game starts and it's just like swish, swish, drain, drain. They just, I, like they don't miss a single three it felt like the entire game, and they did not get tired at all, and we ended up losing the game. So judging others is unwise, even just practically speaking, and our text this morning is going to take that much further. Paul is going to tell us that to judge a person is actually to risk bringing down the judgment of God on our head. So let me pray for us 
uh, and then we'll dive into this passage. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the gift that it is, and we pray that you would uh, just illuminate it for us this morning. Speak to us through it. In your name, amen. Uh, So Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what's crazy to me is Paul here is talking about judging the worst of the worst. In in Romans 1, he's already described these people who he says are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. He says they're full of envy, murder, deceit, maliciousness. He says they are haters of God and inventors of evil. And then he says to judge them is just as bad as everything they're doing. How can that be? A judgmental person is someone who knows God exists. They believe in God, but they want nothing to do with what God is all about, which is restoring sinners to himself. They see themselves as better. They want themselves elevated, and they want to see others judged. They want to see others punished and put beneath them. And Paul is speaking to Jews uh, for his audience who are looking out at the Gentiles and judging them. But for us in our modern context this morning, uh, this happens in the church. This is a church problem. And when we judge others, we do it on the basis of our own religious rules that we pull from the Bible or that we think we're pulling from the Bible and we're holding these up and they're often things that we're good at, right? And we're saying, look, these are, these are the things that, that help me know, that make me know that I deserve God's love and it's why I know that you don't. Religious, legalistic, moralistic people need the gospel just as much as these irreligious heathens. Religious obedience is just another form of idolatry. That's Paul's main point here. And if you've been in the church long, even if you haven't been in the church long, you know that this is a massive issue for us. It's one of the main reasons listed as to why people walk away from the church. Self-righteous, hypocritical people who are holding up their own good behavior and comparing everyone else to it and judging everyone else by a standard that they themselves don't even live up to. Because the self-righteous person is taking the creature, in this case themselves, and putting it in the place of the creator. Judging another human being is the perfect example of putting ourselves in the place of God. It's idolatry of the self. And that's why Paul is going to say those who do this thing are just as guilty of all these other things. Because it's the same root 
issue, the main issue here it's stemming from is this exchange that Paul is talking about in Romans 1. That's the result of the fall. We've exchanged God's truth for our own twisted, selfish, personal version of our truth. We've taken where the creator belongs, taken him off that pedestal, and put ourselves there. So this would be quite shocking for Paul's Jewish readers to hear, right? They're listening in Romans 1, and they're like, yes, Paul, bring the hammer. You're nailing these Gentiles. They're the worst. They're so bad. They're going to get what they deserve. And then he's like, and guess what? Your attitude toward them is just as bad as anything that they're doing. Have you ever had that thought? This, this person, they're going to get what they deserve. And they keep this up, like they're going to get what they deserve. They're going to get what's coming to them. I can tell you, I'm, I've been guilty of that thought myself. Judging a person is God's business, not ours. You see, what's crazy about that thought, they're going to get what they deserve. What they deserve is what we all deserve. We all deserve God's wrath. But there's this tension that exists when we talk about uh, judging others, because as Christians, it's important for us to be able to judge what is right and wrong so that we can know and do what is right and wrong and encourage our brothers and our sisters to do what is right and wrong. And we see this tension right here in Romans. It starts with verse 32 into our passage here, right? So Paul's talking about how we don't want to judge others, but at the same time, he's saying in verse 32, we also don't want to give approval to those who practice any of these things. So we have to clarify what kind of judgment Paul has in mind here. And we're talking about judging the person, not the action itself. 1 Corinthians 2.15 is going to tell us it's spiritually healthy for us to judge all things as right or wrong according to God's will, his wisdom, his word. That's actually important. We need to do that as Christians or else we risk becoming like those in Romans 1.32, accepting of everything okay with everything, even just in our silence, even just in not speaking out against these things, showing and giving our approval. So don't hear me saying that we should never call out another person's behavior or tell them that what they're doing is wrong. That's a card that gets played a lot, right? Only God can judge me. And when we play that card, we're being ignorant of scripture. That's not what scripture tells us, Paul says many times, Ephesians 5.11, rebuke the works of darkness. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. And in Galatians 6.1, this one's important for us this morning, we're going to focus in on this one. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So how on earth can we interact with a person like the one described in Romans 1, right? Uh, judge their actions, even call them to repentance, and yet not judge the person themselves. So when a person senses you're judging them, that's pretty much game over for that interaction, right? No, nobody, nobody wants the help of a judgmental person. I remember being at A&M. There was this preacher who would come all the time. All four years that I, there, he, that I was there, he was there pretty regularly. And he had this huge sign with big yellow font, and it said, you deserve hell. And he would stand out on the, you know, in, the, in the main student area, and he would just like yell at people coming by and, and incite these, these uh, dialogues with them. And I can tell you, 
uh, without any bit of exaggeration, I never once, and I watched a lot, you know, early on I watched more, any excuse to skip class is a good excuse, right? Not really, just kidding, don't skip class, college students, right? But I would sit there and I'd watch because I was interested, and not one single interaction did I see between him and a college student that was fruitful. Never once was someone like, you know, oh, I think I'd like to check your church out. You know, or like, oh, I deserve hell. Like, could we get coffee? I'd like to hear more of what you think about me. You know, no one wants the help of a judgmental person. We've already said God is all about restoring sinners to himself. And Paul says in Galatians, we, we are called to restore anyone caught in transgression in a spirit of gentleness. So this is our focus now for the, the rest of this morning. We're talking about how we restore, but not judge others. And the answer is, it actually starts with you and with me and not with that person at all. It's all about what's going on inside your heart. The best chance that you have to restore someone is if they know you are coming from a place of unity with them and not judgment over them. I want to break those two things down, starting with what it looks like to come from a place of judgment. We've already talked about what I think is one of the biggest warning signs, and that's uh, welcoming, being excited about God's wrath or judgment on others. Like we're calling for it. We're hoping for it. That's exactly the issue Paul has with his audience in this passage. And the other side of that same coin is contempt for God's kindness, We don't think other people deserve forgiveness. This person doesn't deserve forgiveness. This person isn't worthy of God or they've written God off or God's written them off. They don't deserve his kindness, his love, his forgiveness. We could call this the Jonah approach, right? Jonah basically forced to go in to Nineveh and, and he actually gets angry with God when God works a miracle and the Ninevites repent of all their terrible wrongdoing. He's upset about it. Right? So we're thinking of another person like this person, they've, they've given up on God. They don't deserve God's kindness. They don't deserve God's forgiveness, which neither do any of us. Ready and willing to call out others, but unable to be called out. I think we all probably know somebody like this. Maybe you've interacted with somebody like this in your past. For me, this brings up memories of elementary school. A girl named Susan absolutely loved to correct anything and everything wrong that you were doing. You know, it's like, Karen, put the red marker in the yellow marker tray or like whatever. I don't know what elementary students do wrong, but like just whatever it was, always correcting, right? And always like reveling in telling on someone and getting them in trouble, often me, you know? And I remember one day she corrected the teacher and the teacher corrected her back because she was wrong and she cried. And it was the best day of my life. <laughs> right? And that's a silly example, but uh, this is a dangerous place to be, particularly these two things in combination. Right? When, when, we're, when we don't like getting called out, and let's be honest, very few of us enjoy getting called out. It's something I'm bad at. It's something I'm not good at. I'm not good at getting called out. It's been a struggle my whole life. Uh, and I'm trying to get better at it. My wife said, would say maybe I'm maybe a little better at it. <laughs> You know, but it's the combo of these two things. Not only do we not like getting called out, but we also think we have all the freedom in the world to call others out. That's hypocritical, judgmental territory. 
a wake of wrecked relationships in your past. Relationships that are important, family, friends, people who really know you well, repeatedly cutting ties with others or having strained relationships with others where it's always, it's always that other person's fault. If that's describing your closest relationships and if you know deep down that you struggle with self-righteousness, you may be able to restore much of the damage done just by owning that you have a judgmental heart like many of us struggle with and and starting to put to practice some of the things that we're going to talk about that help us avoid judging others. Lastly, and we're going to dive into this one more, feeling like we have no need for personal repentance. And this is maybe the most dangerous of all. This is a terrible place to be. Like, I'm not doing anything wrong. Like, I don't really have many problems. God, thank you for making me like so sinless. You know, this is not a safe place to be because what we're going to talk about soon is that restoring others requires us to acknowledge our own sin first. And so these are some of the warning signs, but, but self-righteousness, judgmentality is not easy for us to spot in ourselves. You know, and that's because self-righteousness by its very nature is we're thinking ourselves are righteous. It looks like righteousness to ourselves. We don't see the issue. We don't think anything's wrong. And so I would say this morning, if you're hearing this and you're like, this just isn't me. I don't struggle with judging others with self-righteousness. Like, that's not an issue for me. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not self-righteous. It's like you're kind of walking into your own trap there a little bit, Right? And, uh, and I would say that, that if you feel like this message is just not relevant to you in any way, it may be that you're exactly who this message is for. And sadly, I would say those who would worry the most about this message, worry the most that they're judging others, are probably the ones who need to worry about it the least. Brings me to a massive point this morning. How you view yourself shows whether you are judging others or restoring them. Tim Keller asked this question in his commentary on this passage. He says, do you identify as a hopeless sinner whom God would have a perfect right to cast off this minute because of the state of your heart and life? Our posture toward others must be that of a hopeless sinner. Because that's the truth. And maybe you're hearing that, oh, hold on a second. Not wait a second. I have hope in Christ. I was like, yes, amen. But what Keller means is in and of ourselves, we are hopeless. We are dead in our sins. All of us start that way, dead in our sins. And what can a dead man do to save himself? That's what I mean when I say it starts with us and not with the other person. We can't think of ourselves as any better than they are. We have to see ourselves in this sinner described in Romans 1. That's where we come from. And we're so tempted to compare sins and to think, well, I've, I've do, I'm going to this many Bible studies now. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing this, right? And it's like, 
trying to play that game, we could think of it like this. Getting to heaven, right, on our own or thinking of ourselves as better than other people, getting to heaven is like swimming the Pacific Ocean, okay? And the only way you get there is you have to land on the other shore. And once you leave, no one's coming to help you. It's you and you alone. But we all leave from the same shore, okay? And so some of us are like, hey, I'm actually a really good person and I do a lot of good. And it's like, okay, great. Well, you get pretty far, right? Some of us may get 100 yards before the waves take us. Some of us may be Marty Paris training for an Ironman, right? He gets two whole miles, right? And it's kind of applicable to this because he's also our lead elder, right? But we're saying at the end of the day, yeah, okay, maybe your sin doesn't look as bad as another person's. You're ending up in the exact same place. You haven't gotten any closer to the shore. We're all dead at the bottom of the ocean. That's our position, dead at the bottom of the ocean. No one is making it to the shoreline. And so we have to believe that. We're all dead in our sins until Jesus rescues us, and it's Jesus who's rescuing us, opening our heart to the truth of the gospel. You're going to be the most effective at restoring a person when you see yourself in them, and that's easy to say, and it's really, really hard to do. You know, like we hear this, and we're like tempted. We're like, oh, okay, I've got the code now. Like, and you go up to that person, and you're like, hey, I'm a sinner just like you. Now, here's why you're a terrible person, Right? It's not enough just to say it. We have to actually believe this about ourselves. They have to genuinely sense from you that there is no judgment. And that's what I mean by coming from a place of unity with them. And I, I know this can seem borderline impossible uh, to do with certain people that you may have in mind. And thankfully, Jesus himself is actually going to give us an exercise for how we can get there in Matthew 7. And we've got the, the passage up here. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to summarize this. But he says here, he says, first we examine ourselves and take the plank from our own eye. And only then do we know how to remove the speck from our brother's eye. And when you stop and you truly say, okay, Lord, Give me your eyes. Help me examine myself and truly confront and see and know the brokenness of my past and my present. And you let that, you stop. You stop and you pray that and you let that take you where it needs to take you to all the bad thoughts that you've had, the white lies that you've told, the selfish decisions that you've made, the people that you love that you've hurt, the angry outbursts that you've had, whatever it may be, right? And the difference in size here is no accident. Jesus says it's a plank versus speck. And that brings us to a pretty humbling realization. If we're examining ourselves correctly like he's asking us to, then we're going to be far more aware of plenty more examples throughout the course of our lifetime of our brokenness and our sin that we can use to then help us approach this other person in their one issue or their one you know, sin pattern that we're addressing, whether that be a family member or a friend. Jesus says, when you reflect on these things, then 
you'll actually be able to see reality better. Then you'll actually be able to help that person. You'll be coming from a spirit of humility where you're seeing yourself in them and they're going to actually be able and willing to listen to what you have to say to them. They're going to be much more open when you're coming with that kind of posture. And Jesus' goal in having us do this plank versus speck exercise And this is actually his goal in his entire life's work. It's not condemnation. It's not beat yourself up over the head with all the dumb things you've done and all the sins you've committed and all the wrong things you've done. It doesn't end in condemnation. That's not his goal. It ends in salvation. John 3.17 says it like this. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so the more we practice this and we examine ourselves and our sin and we let it do what the gospel does, we take it to the wondrous cross where Jesus has died for all of it, past, present, and future. And we go through that process regularly. We examine our sin and we take it to the cross and we reflect on the fact we're saved from all of it. The more we do this, the more we're going to become people that are about saving others instead of condemning them. Let's talk for a minute about what this looks like in our lives when we're about restoring and not judging others. And then we're going to be done this morning. First, able to be wrong. And this is so huge. Proverbs He's going to say that the essence of wisdom is to be open to correction and criticism. And conversely, it's going to say that a fool is someone who thinks they're always right. A wise person, able to be wrong. A fool, always right. So in difficult relationships, when we're, when we're dealing with someone that we either need to confront or that maybe they're confronting us or there's just a strain in this relationship... Consider, be willing to pray and ask God, help me see my own error in this interaction. And don't go and help them see their error too, right? That's where we want to go with it, right? That's our self-righteousness, right? No, Lord, help me see where I'm wrong in this interaction. Or perhaps an even scarier line of questioning, God, Where am I wrong about you right now? Where am I applying your scripture incorrectly, perhaps? Am I truly right about your will in this matter? Father, help me know, help me see where I'm seeing you incorrectly, where I'm failing in that. We have to be comfortable with that line of questioning. That's what Proverbs tells us it is to be wise, open to correction and criticism, even seeking it out if we want to be effective at restoring others. I'm going to tell this story quick, but uh, in, in a, a Bible study that I was in with a lo- lifelong mentor of mine now, didn't know he was going to be that at the time. It was very early on in this Bible study. I wasn't super interested uh, in anything we were talking about. It's my freshman year. I was just starting to kind of take my faith seriously. And uh, one of my friends spoke up, corrected our Bible study leader, and he was like, thank you. And like the way he said it and like the winsomeness and the genuineness that he was actually like grateful that this friend of mine had corrected him. And it t- actually turned out that he was right all along. 
But it was just the fact that he was willing to receive this correction so winsomely. It was like, instantly, I was like, I like this guy. I don't remember what we were teaching. I don't remember a lot, but I remember that interaction still. And, and it's lucky that I, you know, realized that and I was right to like him. He's been a lifelong mentor of mine. So being open to correction and criticism, that's also going to mean our second point here, genuinely listen to others. We have to be able to genuinely listen. Proverbs says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. There's nothing more frustrating than being in an argument with a person, right? Something you're passionate about, something that really means a lot to you. And uh, they're just waiting for you to finish talking so they can pick up right back where they left off. And they're responding to nothing that you just said. Okay? You will never receive correction or criticism. And frankly, you will never be someone who can restore others if you aren't willing and able to truly listen to what they're saying, reflect on it, and respond to it. That's why every counselor in the world, right, during conflict resolution, what does that look like? What's, what's the problem? Okay, what do you hear him or her saying? Okay, is that what you're saying, so that so much conflict can be worked through, right? There's no misunderstanding. We can figure out what we're trying to say and what we mean. It's so important to be able to listen. And speaking of counseling, ask for guidance. Proverbs says, for lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. So if you have a tricky relational issue that you're in, ask for help. Seek out the advice of others. And here's the important point that I want to make in this. Don't seek out people that you know think just like you do. Seek out people who love the Lord and who are wise. But that's what it means to have many advisors. Kindness, gentleness. They get uh, translated the same in a lot of the New Testament. Right here in verse 4 of our passage, Paul says something profound. He says, God's kindness is the key to repentance. So it is through kindness God changes hearts. And Christians play a key role in sharing God's kindness with others. If kindness is key to God, it should be key to us too. Proverbs is going to say, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And gentle here doesn't mean untrue. It doesn't mean you can't speak the truth or that you have to somehow sugarcoat what you want to say. But what it simply means is kind. Speak gently, kindly, right? Tone matters. This is something that I've had to learn too, okay? I'm a passionate person and I get fired up. And like you have to be able to stop. You have to be able to say, okay, am I coming too hard at this? How am I saying this? You need to be able to reflect and say, I need to calm down here. I need to be more gentle in the way that I'm saying what I'm saying. Lastly, absorb conflict. Okay? One of our pastors on staff, Brian Radabaugh, he talks a lot about what it looks like to be a good leader. And uh, this is one of the things we talk about, absorbing conflict. Matthew 18, 15 says, if someone sins or wrongs us, speak to them in private. So if someone has done something that offends you, and you have a wrong with someone, or they've done something that you don't like, 
and you haven't met with that person privately, one-on-one, in a real conversation, and you haven't tried the things that we're talking about, looked first to the plank in your own eye before that conversation and approached in a spirit of humility, prayed and asked the Lord to help you to see where you may be wrong in this conflict, and then genuinely listened, been able to and willing to admit where you might be wrong. If you've done none of these things and you haven't met with this person and you're talking about this issue with other people, then you are gossiping and creating unnecessary conflict. Proverbs is going to say, a perverse person stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. Without wood, a fire goes out, and without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. So don't be that person. Be the unity that you want to see in your family, and in your community, and in your relationships. So we're wrapping up here. Uh, Last thing, I want you to think of the most difficult person alive for you to forgive. Okay, and they may have come, come to mind as we've been talking about this. You may have been thinking about a people group, whatever it is, but I want you to think about a specific person in your life who has wronged you. It's very hard for you to forgive. And I want you to imagine that I come to you and I say, listen, I don't need you to just forgive this person. I'm actually going to need you to take credit for the wrong that they've done. And we're actually going to go public with this and we're going to pin it all on you. And you're going to accept it. You're going to admit it. You're going to act like their wrongdoing was your wrongdoing. And then we're going to punish you for everything wrong that they've ever done to anybody. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Only the ways that we've wronged him are infinitely greater. As much greater as he is greater than us. As Jesus' torture is reaching its peak and he's been nailed to the cross and his body is broken and it's bleeding, he's experiencing what it's like to die and he's taking his last breaths. He looks up to the Father and he says, forgive them who've done this to me. And that's me. And that's you that did that to Jesus. And then Jesus turns toward a sinner so wicked that he's received the worst punishment a criminal can receive in the Roman Empire. And he forgives him on the spot. Can we love our neighbor like that? Show them we love them by sacrificing, by being kind, By admitting wrong first and without the expectation of something in return. By being willing to do all these things that we've talked about this morning, even at the risk of seeing zero fruit, zero repentance, zero ground gained. And when that's so terribly hard, because it is hard and I know it will be hard, 
give glory to God for the way he's loved you, which was infinitely harder. The beauty of the gospel is that God doesn't judge us the way we deserve to be judged. And let's bring that same posture into our families, our friendships, our interactions with strangers, even with our enemies. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we consider the weight of our sin and just how incredible your forgiveness is for it. We can't even really begin to fathom how wrong our sin looks to you, but we know you've forgiven us for it. And Father, I repent for the fact that it's hard for me to, give, to forgive someone who bugs me one day. It can be hard for me to forgive someone who just gets on my nerves. Lord, may you make us people who are willing and able to see ourselves in others. As a church, as those listening, Father, make us safe havens. Make us the kind of people that others are able to open up to and feel safe sharing with. Lord, help us to see the gospel each and every interaction that we have and know that we're broken and that we're dead, that we're in our sin without you. And Father, may that bring us to a place where we can look to the plank in our own eye and the difficult conflicts that we have in our lives, where we can admit wrong, where we can do these things, listen first and truly listen. Father, we know that that's amazingly and miraculously what you do for us. You do these things for us. You've done these things for us. And so we praise you and we thank you for that. And we pray that that would be our our compass and our guide as we go out, that we would love others the way you love us, that you would make Dallas Bible Church a place where others feel uh, they're able to come and be restored for their brokenness. We know that that is your plan for your eternal kingdom, to restore sinners to you. Lord, we pray that you would make us a part of that plan and enable us to restore the broken. In your name, amen.